0: Jesus now enters year four of his ministry. The gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, skip over the entire section John covered in John 7 through 10, those intense I am conversations in Jerusalem. They pick up the story after Jesus leaves the area of Perea and moves to the Caesarea Philippi area. Caesarea Philippi was way north of the Sea of Galilee, way up by the mountains of Lebanon. It's here Jesus is investing more time in his disciples. With this episode, we've reached a real pivot point in his ministry. From here on out, Jesus' focus is no longer binding up the broken, releasing the captives and proclaiming, it's the year of God's favor. Now he's going to make a beeline toward Jerusalem and dying on the cross. Let's pick up the story. In one of the villages around Caesarea Philippi, Jesus and his disciples are alone for a season of prayer. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I, the Son of Man, am? The disciples fire back their responses. John the Baptizer. While that may seem strange, John had been murdered at least a year before. He was the talk of the nation. This rather odd but powerful preacher was viewed as a great prophet by many. Those that were being introduced to Jesus for the first time thought he was John raised from the dead. Even the ruler Herod, who had beheaded John, was a bit afraid of that. Their second response was Elijah. Now that one, you would expect. People for 400 years had been waiting for Elijah to be raised from the dead or someone to come who had Elijah power, who'd be the forerunner for the king. Some people were saying Jesus is that forerunner. Others were saying Jeremiah or one of the ancient prophets who'd been raised from the dead. That gives you an idea of what the typical Jew talking in a barbershop would be saying when Jesus came up in conversation. Then Jesus makes it personal. You, who do you guys say that I am? This is Define the Relationship, Part 2, with his inner circle of apprentices. Simon Peter speaks up. You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Christ means anointed one, the Messiah, God's son. And he could have added the son of David. Now I imagine Jesus giving Simon Peter a high five. We know he says, bless you, Simon. You didn't come up with that on your own. My father gave that to you. I mean, why not high fives? If you're a teacher and one of your pupils suddenly has a wake up moment and gets it, you get really excited. Simon, you are rocky, and upon this rock I will build my church. There's two things we need to pause and talk about here. The first one is that last term, the church. In the gospel accounts, this is the first time Jesus has used that word, church. It's the Greek word ekklesia, the called out ones. That term is going to become extremely important and common as we go through the letters of the New Testament. Apprentices of Jesus will be called out ones, collected into a group that he calls my church. The other thing we need to talk about is Peter and Jesus' statement, upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus further adds, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. You're the rock and I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. It's from this statement recorded by Matthew in chapter 16 That the catholic church bases its doctrine of papal succession that doctrine is when jesus said to peter you're the rock and on this rock i'll build my church and you'll get the keys jesus was in essence making peter the first pope of the church if you take jesus at his literal word that sounds very reasonable peter was the first human to get a set of keys for christ's church Protestants, of course, don't believe in papal succession. Protestants believe that every believer has special access to the kingdom of God. They themselves are priests. Protestants interpret Jesus' words as a metaphor. It was Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that was the foundation stone or rock of how the church would be built. By that they mean, if you confess Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you're a part of his church. And as you're added to his church, the church is built. When they get done with his keys to the kingdom chat, Jesus begins to lay out his plan for the months ahead. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer, be rejected by the religious leaders, be killed, and on the third day arise from the dead. Peter immediately gets into his face. God forbid, this shall never happen to you. He's maybe taken that, that rock and keys statement a little too seriously. So Jesus gets in Peter's face. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're seeking the things of man, not the things of God. Wow, that's quite a day, Peter. High-fived by the Son of God and dressed down by the Son of God. Jesus challenges the disciples and any of those in the crowd listening in. Here's the deal. I need you to come after me. And to do that, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross every day and follow. Those people knew what he meant by take up your cross daily. They'd likely witnessed Roman crucifixions. They'd seen the accused carrying the cross piece. Jesus then challenges them. Seek to save your life. You'll end up losing it. But lose your life in my life or for my sake and you'll find it. Stand with me, people, proudly. If you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you when I come with glory with the holy angels to judge the deeds of men. Jesus adds a P.S. Some of you will see the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom glory. Three of the disciples wouldn't have to wait very long for that. The gospel writers tell us about a week later, Jesus invited Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain. Come on, let's go pray. Jesus started praying. The three disciples fell asleep. While they were sleeping, something incredible happened. The appearance of Jesus' face changed. It shone like the sun. His garments became lustrous, extremely white like snow, brilliant white like light. What's going on here? The gospel writers explain it this way. Jesus was transfigured. They use the word metamorpho. You've heard that word before, metamorphosis. I've only seen that once in my entire life. When my kids were little, a friend gave us a monarch. Caterpillar chrysalis. It was stuck to a twig and leaf. We kept it in a half gallon jar on our counter. Every day we looked at that little green glob. One night while we were having dinner, we heard a very subtle but strange sound. That sound came from that half gallon glass jar. The monarch butterfly was flying in that jar trying to get loose. I wasn't expecting it to come out of there full sized. It was incredible. We stood at the patio door, opened the lid, and watched it fly away. What's happening on this mountain, according to the Gospel writers, is we're getting a peek inside the chrysalis, but more happens still. Guests join Jesus, Peter, James, and John on the mountain, or Moses and Elijah. God star treks them in, and they too are glowing radiant. Luke explains what they were there to do. They're talking with Jesus about his departure, which he was going to fulfill in Jerusalem they're discussing his crucifixion and resurrection. It's at this time, Peter, James, and John wake up from their little nap. When I saw that monarch in the jar, I was in lump in the throat impressed. These men were terrified. Peter blurts out, Lord, this is amazing. Let us build three lean-tos, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Shocked, sleepy-headed Peter didn't really know what he was saying then a radiant cloud descends over all of them. And from this cloud comes a voice. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. Listen to him. The disciples hit the deck face down. A radiant cloud descending on a mountain and a voice. This sounds like Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. These men drop, faces to the ground. Then it gets very quiet. When they dare look up, Jesus is walking toward them saying, "Guys, it's okay. Don't be afraid. Just promise me you'll tell no one of this. Are we clear?" This event, the Mount of Transfiguration, is a huge event in the life of Jesus and the disciples. These three got a peak of Jesus coming in his kingdom with glory. They got a peak of Jesus mission part 2. From early in the Old Testament, we knew that the Messiah who would come would do two things. He would die for his people as a suffering Savior, and he would come to reign as a righteous king. In the coming months of Jesus' ministry, he's going to be fixated on being that suffering servant dying on behalf of his people. But as the disciples are going to come to learn, there's going to be a period of time before he does part two, coming in glory and power as that righteous king. Peter, James, and John got a taste of that coming glory and power as king. The bigger question for me is, why did this happen? And to these three men, and right now, why did they have to see the chrysalis peeled back a bit to see the radiating glory of Jesus? And why Star Trek Moses and Elijah in? And why the voice of God in the cloud? And why the radiant cloud and God speaking from it? Here are some clues right from the text. The first one is, this comes right after Jesus called Peter the rock and made the first mention of building the church. Clearly, Peter is the first leader after Jesus departs. And as we'll see in Acts, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter preaches a sermon where over 3,000 are saved at one time. God also uses Peter to open the door of the church to the Gentiles. Peter also writes two letters shepherding the church at the back of the New Testament. Peter is a key player in building Jesus' kingdom. After Peter, James will become the main leader of the church in Jerusalem until he's martyred by Herod, and John will be carried along by the Holy Spirit to write the gospel focused on convincing us Jesus is the Son of God, that we might believe in him and be saved based on how they'd be used by God, Jesus wanted to give them a peek that he was the real deal. I think another reason why Jesus peeled back the chrysalis was that Peter had just challenged him in his plan to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. So God, from the cloud, addresses Peter, James, and John directly. It's pretty hard to miss when he says, this one, the one I love, listen to him that God is scolding them to stop fighting Jesus' submission to God's will and his plan to die for our sins. The Proverbs writes, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. As human beings, we need our hope fanned. I don't think it's coincidence God star-tracked in Moses and Elijah. Some talk about Moses representing the law and Elijah the prophets, and Jesus said the law and the prophets... Gave testimony to him, and I imagine there could be a lot of truth to that. But I think there was something personal in this as well. Let me explain. Moses was to take the people of God to the Promised Land. In Exodus 32, at Mount Sinai, those people broke many of God's laws with the Golden Calf incident. Moses is quite devastated. In Exodus 33, God says, Take these obstinate people to the Promised Land. With that mission in mind, moses begs god to show him his face i need to see your glory i just got to know who you are god peels back the curtain and shows moses a bit of his glory from that moses is able to sustain a mission for the next 40 years through the whinings and wanderings in the wilderness then we get to elijah He's sent on a mission by God to challenge a straying nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and especially during their worst time under King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. He's a pariah in the land because of the famine he's prayed for. He's just beaten down the 850 false prophets. Jezebel has put a hit out on his life. Elijah becomes worn out. The nation is still a wreck. And now God says, go finish your mission. But Elijah is a wreck. So God says, go stand outside. And then God reveals a little bit of himself to Elijah. First in a wind, then an earthquake, then a fire, and finally a whisper. After that, Elijah digs down, digs deep, and finishes his mission. I think these men, so foundational to the growth of Jesus' church, needed to have their hope fanned. Jesus saw this and graciously brought it about. In the second letter he wrote, Peter urges his readers to press through the suffering and to hold on to hope, hope that they are being changed now, and hope that will allow them to expectantly wait for the coming kingdom of Jesus. And how does Peter fan that hope in his readers? He hearkens back to a memory. He says this, When I ask you to look forward to the coming kingdom of Jesus, I'm not following any cleverly devised tales. I was there that day. I saw him in majesty there on the mount. I heard the voice of God declare, This is my son in whom I delight. I was there. And based on that, I know you can count on Jesus doing the rest of what was prophesied he would do. That coming in glory as king part. Which brings me back to that day I heard that subtle horror in that jar on our kitchen counter. I don't have grandkids yet, but imagine with me, I got some, and I determined as grandpa to give them that same thrill of seeing that monarch butterfly emerge. Imagine with me over the next 15 years, I did that 15 times, and no butterfly ever came out. That would be disappointing, but I would still believe in metamorphosis, find chrysalises and put them in jars, and I would continue to wait, because folks, I had seen that butterfly. I'd gotten a peek years before that it really did happen. Jesus knew Peter, James, and John needed to know this did happen and will happen. And as his follower, I need to know that too. There's a lot of other things Jesus' disciples need to know before he takes off as well. Some things they need to learn and other things they desperately need to unlearn. And we'll take a look at his course objectives and how he helped his learners master them in our next word picture.